0: Hello and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia with Dr. James White. Episode 3. Murder in Venice. The tale of Molia Tarnovskaya. Five shots rang out from a pistol. Count Pavel Komarovsky staggered backwards across the floor of his luxurious Venetian villa, pain and shock assaulting his senses. There was no mystery as to his assailant's identity. Holding the smoking gun before him was his young acquaintance, the occasional poet Nikolai Naumov. "'My friend, why do you want to kill me?' the Count cried plaintively as he sank to the floor. Naumov made himself crystal clear. "'You must not marry Maria!' Then he calmly left the dying man, embarking on the gondola to make his way to the train station. Komolovsky, however, was not yet finished. He lingered in agony for a few days more, telegramming his beloved fiancée Maria to join him one last time. The request, however, was ignored. On the same day, the 3rd of September 1907, Naumov arrived in Verona, where he had agreed to meet with the woman at the centre of this web, Molia Tonovskaya. However, she was nowhere near the town. Instead, she was sitting in Vienna, receiving telegrams from yet another lover, the Moscow lawyer Donati Prilukov, as he monitored the situation in Venice. Perhaps she was jubilant at the news. Count Komorovsky had made out his will to Maria, so soon she might be rich. The plot had been concocted in Russia itself. Maria had visited Naumov's home and tearfully told him that Count Komorovsky was forcing her into marriage. She begged Naumov to save her by killing the count. Throughout this pleading, she and Prilukov maintained contact through coded telegrams, with the count being dubbed Adel and Naumov Bertha. However, any optimism for the scheme's success was short-lived. Naumov, still expectantly awaiting Maria in Verona, was quickly arrested and he filled in any of the details that the murdered count had neglected. The conspiring couple were extradited and imprisoned. In February 1910, the scene was thus set for a most scandalous trial, one attracting all the eyes of Europe. Besides journalists from several Russian papers, there were correspondents from the British Daily Mail, the German Berliner Tageblatt, and the French Matin. Room was made in the courthouse for members of former President Theodore Roosevelt's entourage. A crew wielding a brand new invention, a movie camera, was there to capture the front of the courthouse, along with photographers to snap headshots of the accused as they sat caged in the dock. Venice's watery backdrop. Contributed to the cinematic quality of the proceedings, as the defendants were delivered to the court not in wagons, but in jailhouse gondolas, their windows covered in bars. As her gondola leisurely careened its way to court each morning, Venetians yelled insults at Maria from canal banks and bridges. Lurid details of Maria Tonowska's romantic entanglements soon filled homes, bars, and street corners across the continent. The sadomasochistic elements of Maria's relationship with the young killer Naumov proved particularly titillating. She has snubbed out cigarettes on his body and carved her initials into his chest. And Maria, it turned out, had more skeletons in her closet than the average graveyard. For one thing, this was not her first murder trial. Some seven years earlier, on the 6th of December 1903, her husband Vasily Tarnovsky had loaded a bullet at point-blank range into the head of one of her squeezes after a drink fueled debauch at the Kiev Grand Hotel. That trial, held in 1905, trawled over a married life fraught with wife-beating, shadowy sex and violence. Only three years prior, for instance, Tarnovsky had fought a bloody duel in southern France with another of his wife's lovers. Indeed, the list of men with whom Maria had enjoyed carnal relations seemed endless. Her life, it appeared, was naught but one dalliance after the next, as she cruised to luxury hotspots in Europe, Russia and even Algeria. The press, in its reaction, divided along broadly national lines. The British, French, German and Italian papers had little difficulty interpreting the murder. The Russian nobility were infamous for their debauchery. Spoilt brats, whose wealth was either used frivolously or to oppress the Russian people, whose back-breaking labour was the source of all their cash. And wasn't such a ruling elite a sign of a very sick society? No wonder the Russians had tried to have a revolution in 1905, only a few years earlier. Thus, the accounts of the Western press neatly dovetailed into pre-existing criticism of the Romanov regime's tyranny. Their sympathies, insofar as they had them, fell on the Ulmov, considered a lovesick puppy, Hypnotised by the alluring Maria into an absurdly convoluted murder plot. Matters were trickier for the Russian press, though. Initially, they too sided with Naumov, who could be framed as some poor romantic soul. Maria's cold and disdainful demeanour in the courtroom won her few admirers. Count Komarovsky, the victim, earned contempt for having moved on to Maria almost as soon as his wife had passed away. Prilukov her co-conspirator, was even worse, a remorseless scoundrel who had defrauded clients through his legal practice and ditched his wife and child once Maria had come along. But soon a new narrative started. Nationalist journalists took offence at how the crime was being portrayed as peculiarly Russian in character, while others objected to Italian double standards. Men who kill their wives or mistresses are always acquitted, but the opposite never, complained the Odessa paper Odieski Listok about Italian justice. The focus of sympathy was thus moving towards Maria. This, of course, meant ascertaining precisely who Maria was and getting her side of events. Biographies of doubtful provenance quickly started appearing in the Russian papers, filled with salacious rumours about teenage trysts with firemen. The reality, insofar as it can be known, was far duller. By all accounts, a rather plain woman... She originated from a family of petty gentry in southern Russia, and had led a rather unremarkable life right up until her marriage at age 17 to Vasily Tarnovsky. In the testimony she gave to the court, he bore no small share of the blame for her eventual fate. A licentious and degenerate man, he had introduced her to no end of illicit vices. Siding with Naumov, the court's favourite, Tarnovskaya depicted herself as a poor, innocent woman, buffeted from one criminally deranged man to the next as she sought desperately to rehabilitate her reputation and secure a future for her child by Tarnovsky. In her words, If people only knew how much pain and suffering is hidden behind my mask of indifference, only now do I see that my trial is founded on the despicability and revenge of people who were close to me and now pour out slanderous fabrications. If I could show all the tears that I have shed if I could describe all the bitterness that I am enduring, purity in love was forbidden to me. Naumov was her knight, she claimed, compared to the dragon of Prilukov, a cold and cynical manipulator. However, a packet of 27 love letters to Prilukov undermined the credibility of this claim. Much the Western press did not buy into this story, depicting her libertinism as largely a result of cultural and social degeneracy in the decaying Russian Empire. Others turned to the emerging literary trope of the femme fatale, the domineering, dangerous, vampiric woman. Here Tarnovskaya was made to stand in for her entire nation, a feminine vampiric empire whose irrationality and violence might soon descend on masculine, rational, reasonable Europe. Some Western feminists and liberal Russian commentators, however, were far more willing to listen to Tarnovskaya. For them, Hers was a tragic tale of an unfortunate and loving woman, grossly mistreated by both the men in her life and the patriarchal system that forced her into reliance upon them. They poured scorn on the Ulmov, who was using claims of hypnotism to push blame from himself onto Maria, the supposed object of a love so passionate he'd been willing to kill. Maria's attitude, interpreted often as haughty, was seen in this light as stoical others thought of Maria as a new woman, albeit a very imperfect one. Independent, sexually emancipated and self-controlled, but at the same time struggling with a system that rendered her dependent on men for social validity. Ideas about the new woman were much in vogue at the time. Remember, this was the era of the suffragettes in Britain, when women clashed with the police and threw themselves into the king's racehorse in the name of getting the vote. In Russia, universities and other higher educational institutions have started to admit women from the 1860s. Although there was much reactionary backsliding, by the early 1900s women had made significant headway into both the medical and teaching professions. More radically, female revolutionaries had become almost a stock image in contemporary Russian literature. Their short hair, strict dress and fierce disdain for bourgeois domesticity designed to shock and destabilise the political order and social opinion alike. Most famously, one of their number, Vera Zazulich, had openly shot the governor of St. Petersburg in 1878. Despite innumerable witnesses, she was acquitted, a demonstration of how liberal opinion was rapidly turning against the Tsarist regime. Thus, the Tarnovsgaard trial offered an opportunity to once again put the so-called woman question under the microscope. In a novel step, the newspaper odieski Listok* asked its readers to complete a survey on the case and send in their responses. Attitudes ranged widely from condemnation to solidarity, with some declaring her mentally incapable, greedy and violent. But a significant minority sympathised with Maria's position as a woman in a world where women had limited freedom. Perhaps the most interesting response came from a maid, who even sent the editors money to ensure its publication. I now quote her letter at length. Only men are judging her. I would be interested to see what would happen if judges, lawyers and jurors were women. The only thing I find her guilty of is that she did not do enough to destroy the lives of those swine. I think the court should be grateful to her, in the name of all Russians, because she liberated us from such procreators and fathers, such garbage as Naumov, Komolovsky, and Prilukov. Equally, the Russian papers had a point when they criticised the Italian justice system for painting the crime and its perpetrators as inherently Slavic. The Italian prosecutors and expert psychologists drew, as many did in Europe and Russia at the time, from the physiological theories of Cesare Lombroso, who had been convinced that criminality could be detected in physical characteristics. Hence the late 19th century craze for phrenology, the measurement of facial and skull features, as a means for determining a person's character. By the late 19th century, many mixed Lombroso's theories with increasingly racialized social Darwinism. This posited that a hierarchy of races existed, and that the position of a race on this hierarchy was determined and identifiable through certain physical characteristics, most emblematically skin colour. So, the Italian legal and psychology specialists involved in the trial repeatedly called the crime a symbol of racial Slavic degeneracy. The defendants, ranted. the prosecution, were nothing more than, and I quote, barbarians dressed as Europeans. As a backwards Russian, they argued, Naumov was more susceptible to the suggestion than supposedly more advanced, non-Slavic Europeans. This was also used to explain Naumov's sexual masochism. His Slavic race, in other words led to a greater propensity for mental immaturity and being dominated by others. For Tarnovska's part, the jurists noted that she not only had Russian blood in her veins, her distant ancestor in the 18th century had moved to Russia from Ireland, and the Irish were on the same level as Slavs in this grand racial hierarchy. The guilty verdict, when it finally came, encapsulated the opinions of the Western press and observers. Naumov, the man who had fired five shots into a former friend, was given a sentence of three years and one month. He was immediately released, since he had already served the sentence while awaiting trial. The damned Prilukov, loved by no one, got ten years. As the historian Louise McReynolds, from whose book we take this tale, notes, he was guilty in essence of being so detestable. Tonovskaya, meanwhile, was dispatched to the Trani prison for eight years, Although she was released at the outbreak of the First World War during the trial she garnered an immense amount of celebrity in Russia and abroad an Italian writer even penned a semi-fictionalized biography which was rapidly translated into French Russian and English However little is known about her life after prison she finally dies in Argentina in 1949 perhaps fleeing the Red Army like so many of her emigre compatriots So why is Maria's tale worth telling It is fascinating for many reasons far beyond the rather squalid details. First, there is the insight into the inner relationships of a certain social class just before the 1917 revolution swept it all away. A middling medley of petty landowners, small-time provincial gentry, and new professionals. As it turns out, their biographies are no less engaging than those of the emperors and their courtiers, tangled in an infinite web of intrigue and scandal. Second, the trial became a sounding ground for a particularly prejudiced retelling of that old cultural struggle, Russia versus the West. For the Italian jurists involved, the case was a microcosm of Western civilization against Russian barbarism, a pitting of Italian enlightened justice against Slavic violence and childlike immaturity. For its part, much of the Russian press castigated the Italian court, and rightly so for its reliance on racialized theories of criminology, gendered hypocrisy and cultural arrogance. Finally, Tarnovskaya became a symbol of a new woman. Oppressed by violent and manipulative men, she had, in this interpretation, used her sexual emancipation to turn the tables on her abusers and live a life free of patriarchal restraints. For conservative men, the same interpretation was a cause for anxiety. For with the new woman, Tarnovskaya, had emerged the new man, Naumov, weak-willed, submissive, masochistic. In short, the Tarnovskaya trial, in a way few other cases did, brought to the surface a whole range of both Russian and European cultural debates. Regrettably, with the light sentence granted to the infantilised Naumov, the trial also confirmed the rising power and acceptability of a racist hierarchy of European peoples. The same ideology that was, but a few decades later, to lead the Nazis and the Italian brownshirts into an anti-Semitic genocide and the savage slaughter of Slavic peoples. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.